there's a lot of kind of deep inefficiencies uh, and a lot of good room for innovation to help smooth those pathways out for our students. But what's crystal clear, though, is is not getting a credential is a real problem. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. Today, we're exploring the changing higher ed landscape and getting some great advice on college choices from Mark Millerin. Mark was quoting Georgetown's Tony Carnavale, probably the leading expert on post-secondary credentials. Tony just published a new report on the value of college, and as our blog coverage indicated last week, almost all of the 12 million post-recession jobs uh, went to degree holders. But as our guest today notes, there's been an explosion of student debt, $1.3 trillion in total, trillion. Yeah, and that's part of a new worst-case scenario of going to college, racking up debt, and then leaving without a degree. We've learned in our Gen DIY series, where we've, we've posted over 100 blogs chronicling the lives of young people charting their own course to a career they love, two lessons learned. One is don't go to college until you're ready and don't leave without a degree. Right. And the good news is that universities are using data to improve learning, persistence, and degree choices. Mark Milleron and his Civitas Learning is really at the forefront on on all of those fronts. Mark has been a leader in higher ed for 20 years, first in the community college space. Uh, Then he helped launch WGU Texas. Um, Mark was at the Gates Foundation uh, right after I left uh, late in the last decade. And then in 2011, he co-founded Civitas Learning to help colleges uh, adapt to this digital world. Very cool. Let's listen to your conversation. We're here with uh, Mark Milleron, one of the co-founders of Civitas Learning. Uh, Mark, it's great to have you on the Getting Smart podcast. Great to be here, Tom. Thanks for the invitation to join the conversation. It's clear, uh, Mark, that degrees still matter. We we saw a recent Georgetown study that said basically all 12 million jobs uh, created since the recession went to degree holders. So degrees matter. But we have the sense that there appears to be a declining return on investment that college goers and their parents are are worried about with the increasing cost in higher ed and uh, in this uncertain uh, job market. And, and now there's this new worst case scenario of junior racking up lots of debt and then leaving college without a, a degree. How do you see the higher ed landscape today? No, I think, I mean, it's great conversation to have. And I think unpacking the data really matters. I mean, what we know from the um, Center for Education and the Workforce from Georgetown is that uh, you're right, credentials absolutely do matter. It's not just for your degrees, though. It's um, kind of this kludgy term of post-secondary credentials with labor market value, which literally means things like certifications, um, diplomas, associate's degrees, bachelor's degrees, and more. And they, and they vary depending on, obviously, the career track you're taking. Um, what's pretty clear, though, is the most expensive thing is not getting a credential uh, in terms of lifetime outcomes. Uh, but you identify right. The scariest thing that's happening right now is, you know, um, a little over 40 percent of the people who start in higher education uh, do not finish. Uh, the And the challenge with that is, in fact, if you look at the larger data, the estimates are anywhere as low as 31 million to as high as 38 million people have significant college coursework and no credential to show for it. That's a real disaster now, right? That could be like a, a lifetime setback of racking up debt and leaving without a degree. 
Oh, it absolutely is. And, and, and what's worse is it's disproportionately hitting the people who are least able to handle it. So you are far more likely to leave college, uh, college pathway with a debt, with debt rather than a degree if you are first generation low income. Um, in this country. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, when this is kind of education's moment, you know, to take on the kind of big, hairy data challenges that we're seeing. You remember in the in the late, remember in the late 19, uh, or in 2007, 2008, sorry, when um, the data started coming out about medical errors. And when they started, electronic medical records started being connected, we suddenly discovered that the number three killer of people in the United States might be medical errors. And it was this wonderful moment when the world of um, the world of medicine kind of went through, you know, all the Kubler-Rossian stages of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance around that. Uh, but they finally came to the realization that, wow, this data is right um, and that we have to get our act together. And you saw big movements, the checklist manifesto and a bunch of other work or with data work in uh, in the world of medicine. And we're kind of there in the world of education where we're realizing that, you know, a, a big chunk of people who start don't finish. Um, the, if you're a low income first generation, you're more likely to leave with debt than a degree. Um, and even worse, I mean, if you really want to unpack this, just the the loss of productivity around things like transfer. You know, students who are middle middle income, low income are more likely to go on a transfer path where they go through a community college to a university and they lose anywhere from 20 to 40 percent of their um, their credit uh, in transition. So it's it, there's a lot of kind of deep inefficiencies uh, and a lot of good room for innovation to help smooth those pathways out for our students. But what's crystal clear, though, is is not getting a credential is a real problem. So what do you see responsive institutions doing to uh, to remain vital and competitive and uh, really to deliver value? And I think what, what's happening now is most people now are beginning to take a step back and say, let's look at the pathways we're asking students to, to uh, traverse. Um, and I think there's intra-institutional pathway work where they're looking, you know, from first contact to the time they cross the stage and the best colleges and universities actually think entry to endowment, the time that they're actually giving back. Um, and they're also beginning to look at regional education ecosystem, realizing that, you know, 85 percent of middle and low income students stay in the regions they live in and they go from K-12 to community colleges to universities or some combination of all of the above. And they're beginning to kind of map those journeys and, and they're beginning to figure out where are the inefficiencies, where are the things we can really impact. And, and just to get real blunt on this. One of the biggest challenges, um, and I think the, the most progressive institutions are getting their head around this, is realizing that the number one challenge people have in, in leaving higher, their higher education pathways isn't always the fact that they're having challenges academically. In fact, our data actually shows we just reached, released our first community insights report at Civitas Learning. You know, we're, you know, we're a consortium of, of partner institutions that are really diving deep with data science and design thinking around this work. And our first large scale community insights report just came out. And one of the things we found in that work was, you know, the majority of students aren't leaving because of academic challenge. They're leaving because of life and logistics or they're leaving because of psychosocial. Um, issues. And uh, one of the biggest ones, just the fundamental ones, is around purpose. Um, people, students not having real clarity about why they're there. And, and Tom, I know you know this. This has been a real challenge because we've done a great job in selling college. You go to a you know, you go to a kindergarten class or a first grade class these days, and it doesn't matter if you're in the middle of uh, rural Appalachia or the inner city, and you ask them who wants to go to college, most of the hands go up. And that wasn't the case 20 years ago. The challenge is they don't know they don't know what that means. And so they end up showing up at college and they say, OK, I got here. Um, and you end up with students who aren't clear about 
which degree path they want to go to, what program they want to be in. And they end up either dabbling or they end up in, in kind of like borrowed paths that don't really work for them. You're listening to Mark Milleran of Civitas discussing today's higher ed landscape. And I think a few of the statistics that he shared definitely bear repeating. First off, that around 40% of students who start in education do not finish, which is just too close to being half of all students who start college. And second, that somewhere between 31 to 38 million people have significant college coursework completed, but they don't have any credentials to show for it. And lastly, that first-gen low-income students, the students who really need these credentials to change their life path, are more likely to leave college with debt instead of a degree. These are some serious challenges. So we asked Mark what colleges are doing to address them. So I think some of the best colleges, for example, one of our partner colleges, Valencia, Community College really takes this um, on from the very beginning. So basically, if a student comes in with a clear purpose, they get them on a pathway. They have this thing called Life Map, heavily driven by data. And the, and the idea of Life Map is life's a trip. You need directions. And the minute you get on that path, you're heavily scaffolded in the courses you're going to take, the supports you're going to need. And their whole goal is for you to drive agency. So you end up being kind of the captain of your ship by the end. But if you walk in the door without a purpose, One of their catchphrases is, if you walk in the door without a purpose for why you're there, guess what your purpose is? To find your purpose, right? So we're going to do a bunch of work with you to get clear about, you know, what kind of degree path makes sense for you. And and what's happening is a whole bunch of students who walk into higher ed are kind of left to their own devices to figure that out. And, And, you know, the second, third, fourth generation students are scaffolded by their friends, families, and and when they have questions, they know who right to go to, and and they're kind of guided on that journey. But a lot of first-generation students don't have the same scaffold. I wonder if you agree. Here's the preliminary conclusions that we've reached with our Generation Do-It-Yourself project, Gen DIY. This is 100 stories by and about young people charting their own course. And after posting 100 of these Gen DIY blogs, We've come to the conclusion that it doesn't make sense to go to college without this sense of purpose, uh, number one. And number two, uh, it's really important not to leave college without a valuable certificate. Are, are both of those about right? Absolutely true. And, and, I, and I think part of what's your original question was, what do some of the best institutions do is they take purpose seriously. And so they are doing a few things. One, in their intake process, they're making Try to try to make it clear to the student. Let's help you get clear about what you want to do before you start signing up for a bunch of courses and taking, especially taking student loans down. The big difference uh, from when I went to college forty years ago, college was sort of a one shot deal. You know, you you went to college and then you worked and then you retired. But now there's there's so many more on ramps and options that if you don't know that going to work or taking a gap year can be uh, and delaying that decision can be a really good move. Yeah, and here's the I mean here's the rub is we are clearly in this kind of best of times, worst of times world of learning swirl um, where you can come in and come out of education where it makes the most sense. And if you're strategic about it, man, you can build some great acceleration and uh, and do some powerful things in your own life. If you're not strategic about it, you end up in this kind of maelstrom of, you know, fits and starts of trying to, you know, complete something but ending up with debt rather than a degree, which is unfortunately, you know, $1.3 trillion in student loan debt is out there. It's bigger than all the credit card debt combined. It's bigger than all the mortgage debt combined. And you can't get rid of it with bankruptcy. So it's, it's not a little thing. This is a really big deal. We've seen a lot of changes even in the last five years in terms of learning 
uh, becoming more mobile and, and modular, uh, more mix and match. Is that generally a good thing? And I think the most progressive institutions are realizing that they are building for kind of the next generation of learning. And the next generation of learning is clearly more mobile. Um, and they're um, taking advantage of what I would call the kind of coming together of a curricular resource strategy, which is kind of a kludgy term for this idea that you basically have this build by share curriculum landscape where you've got curriculum in higher ed that they're specialists and they can build some of their own. They're still buying some stuff from the publishers, but they're pushing more and more of that from Pearson, McGraw-Hill and Hoot Mifflin, whatever it is, to be digital and to be modular so that they can only use what they what they pay for what they use. And then there's the open education movement, which clearly is taking off and exploding. And so you have this kind of build by share um, curation challenge where they're trying to say, here are the learning objectives and then curating the best curricular resources, whether it's build by share that helps somebody master those and then figure out the assessments to tell you whether or not they've learned it. And that's the build out that's happening right now in higher ed where they're trying to kind of make that move. And what's great for companies like Civitas and the work that we do is that's powerful digital stream that actually gives you great footprints of the journeys that students are on. So you can help them when they hit challenges and basically tell them students like you who are at this stage, here's the right course to take, here's the right resource to access, here's the right support you can connect with, here's a good person for you to connect with. And and so it's going to be this wonderful kind of yin-yang of kind of this build out of, of new techniques like mobile and modular learning, which by the way, the students are comfortable with as long as they're not used as gimmicky. I mean, students are completely comfortable with face-to-face -face work of it. That's what works the best. They absolutely have no patience for new technology stuff that really is just about bells and whistles. So let's, let's recap uh, some of the emerging data solutions in higher ed. And Civitas Learning has uh, emerged since your founding in about 2011 as, as a leader in this space. So let's sort of walk through the life cycle. How is data improving outreach and enrollment? Our work from the very beginning was about trying to help institutions make sense of and make the most of the data at their fingertips. So you know that institutions are sitting on mountains of data and their SIS and their LMS and now curricular resource systems and card swipe and tutoring centers. Um, so part of our work was to kind of help them build an infrastructure for advanced analytics, almost a student success platform, if you will, so they could do with data science what every other sector has done. Um, so we, our first two years was really a beta program with four universities and two community colleges. But since then, we've grown to you know, about 275 institutions. And a lot of them have focused on that enrollment, an enrollment piece of bringing them into the institution and getting them started right. Because a lot of the data shows that's where the most of the challenges really hits. And if you can kind of get them over that hump in the beginning, great things can happen. Um, part of that is taking that signal in, in the very beginning to understand who might, um, who is, who is ripe for challenge that can go to the next level and who is going to be, um, a good target for support. And, Tom, one of the things that we found is the simplistic measures that people have been using, whether it's prior term GPA or whether it's kind of incoming income factors, whatever it is, is radically imprecise in, in identifying who won't persist. In fact, we've had some institutions where we've taken their kind of simplistic you know, identifiers of who they think is going to be at risk and who's going to you know, kind of take their, um, the brunt of their um, kind of outreach. And we found that, you know, in doing that work, they've missed 80% of the students who aren't going to persist in the next term. So part of this is, is these institutions are now saying, let's actually use modern data science and build an infrastructure to do that in a way where 
You can pull these data from all these systems, federate it, do the advanced derivative variable creation, which is where the magic really happens, and build institution-specific predictive models to really identify those students early and wrap support around them and scaffold them. And then what's great about that is you go through the life cycle. You can start weaving these analytics into advising support, into instructional support, into you know career option exploration, all that kind of work. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. Today we're talking with Mark Milleron. Mark is a, a higher ed veteran and innovator and co-founder of Civitas Learning. Mark, let's talk about uh, student learning. How, how is that different and better if a college has uh, this, this new uh, data infrastructure? Yeah, so just to give you kind of a concrete example, one of the things we've learned is that um, you want to kind of get the four rights right, which is you build the right infrastructure to get the right data to the right people in the right way. That design thinking of getting people the data the right way is probably one of the hardest things, hardest parts in this process and something we haven't spent a lot of time on. How do you get the data right to students and right to faculty so they can tune that learning experience? And so that's some of the work we've done in developing apps that go right to right to students and right to, to faculty members. We have an app called Inspire for Faculty, for example, that gives them a, a heat map of engagement in their class that is updated every six to eight hours. Um, that allows them to kind of have an understanding of, of who's really engaged and who's connecting and who's kind of falling off the cliff. And by the way, that, ver- that can vary by grade. You can have A students who are clearly bored out of their minds and you can have D and C students who are trying really hard. So part of this is being able to pick up that signal. Um, and what we know, you know, you know this from your own work, Tom, is that Great faculty members, great teachers have always used data. Now, that data might be test grades, eye contact, body language projects. Um, This is just another source of data, and it allows them to kind of work their magic in in more compelling ways. Um, But this identification of students early, so you don't have to wait until the midterm to figure out if someone's having challenge. You literally, in the first few days, can see students who aren't that engaged and figure out how you reach out to them. Um, And what's been powerful about it is, We've had a number of projects where, for example, um, faculty have tried mindset messages and they've timed them throughout the term. So in like the first two weeks, first two days, they'll send a message saying, you know, starting right is really important. Here's what some other students have done to start right. Hope you can do it. In the middle of the term, they'll send a message says, I know this is the dog days. Please dig in. Anything I can do to help you. Don't don't forget to reach out. That's an important lesson, Mark, that uh, we we think about student supports being expensive and comprehensive, but we have learned in the last, I would say, 24 months that these text nudges, a a simple getting the right message to the right student in the right circumstance can make all the difference in the world. Oh my gosh, we have seen, you know, even things like, you know, trying to stop cramming behavior, right? So two weeks before the end of the term, you send them a nudge. It says, you know, the best students who perform the best start now, you know, getting ready for their finish. And the faculty who've done this, we've seen 12% 12% bumps in course completion, 17% reduction in at-risk behavior, 8% reduction in drops. I mean, just hardcore outcomes that shows them that little outreach, little notes at the right moment. You know, I think we've now sent close to 1.8 million nudges in the last two and a half years through either advisor apps or faculty apps. And now we're going direct to student. But one of the things we found, and you'll love this, is, you know, it's not complicated. The, the, the nudges that work the best are from somebody the student knows and has a relationship with and that are simple and empathetic. Literally, it's a nudge like it's basically a nudge that says, Tom, I'm just checking in. Are you OK? 
Now, the are you okay message has three times the left of kind of anything kind of systematic or scientific, you might think. In addition to sending an are you okay message to support students emotionally, Mark also shared some great examples of technology Civitas is using to support students academically. From an app that optimizes class schedules based on the constraints going on in a student's life that they enter, such as only being available certain days or certain times, to one that helps navigate the jungle of changing majors. Listen in, and if you got your college degree any time in the last 50 years, you'll probably be as jealous as we were when we heard about these apps. So we have a couple of of pathway products that um, help students. We have one that's called Schedule Planner, built by um, a constituent company that we have called College Scheduler, that literally says um, a student tells you which courses they need to take. They then you then they ask the app asks the students about their life. When are you working? Um, what when when are you doing? If you're a student athlete, whatever it is, you tell them about your constraints in your life. I can only take classes during these times, or I'm looking for classes at this time. Um, and then it takes that um, courses mix and your constraints and does an optimization match against the entire course availability calendar from that college or university, which, by the way, unless you're John Nash Jr., there's not a single student in the world that can do that kind of optimization match. And it comes back with a graphic, you know, basically a, a set of calendars in a graphic format, you know, looking like an Outlook calendar. It says, here are the 10 calendars that meet your needs. And you look at them and mix and match them and say, register me. Students love it and they've been waiting for it for a long time. We have another one called Degree Map. What Degree Map does is Degree Map basically does the Amazon thing. It says it gives you a wheel of progress that shows you where you are, what you've completed, what's in process, what's left. And then it does, when you plan courses, it does the Amazon thing. It says a student like you at this stage, here's the next set of courses you probably should take. Helps you avoid toxic course combinations, find synergistic course combinations, and stay on track so you're not taking courses you don't need. Um, And then, by the way, if you want to change majors, say you're 40 credits in at a university and you're not quite sure you want that major, it takes your credit accumulation and does an optimization match against every credential at that institution, which, by the way, can be 200 plus And again, no advisor on the planet can do this on their own. It then comes back and says, here's the top 10 credential matches that show you're farthest along. And or you can type in whatever you want to type in and it gives you a visual side by side. Here's where you are. Here's where you'd be. Time difference, cost difference. And by the way, here's a burning glass connection that gives you the job market difference. So here's the jobs that are available if you change your major. And students, again, students love this. They've been wanting it for a long time. They, they almost need no training on these apps because they're things they're used to in the commercial space. But there, there is a lot more mix and match happening where students are taking community college courses. Uh, they might go grab a WGU course. How do they get support for that sort of mix and match degree that's getting more and more prevalent? Yeah, that's a great question. So we haven't done a direct consumer version of that, but we are doing ecosystem conversations, meaning we have a project with Valencia Community College and UCF, a big project with the Maricopa Community Colleges and and Arizona State University and and a group of other regions where we're doing it. And one of the things we're talking about in there is actually being able to show kind of um, joint uh, degree pathway plans. So, you know, it might be that the university doesn't have that course available right now, but the local community college does. And so how do you make sure you can show that to the student so they can build that into the mix um, without having to do it on their own? Because right now, I mean, DIY students, 
do-it-yourself students are amazingly industrious, but often the DIY students are not the ones you have to worry about, right? <laughs> they're the ones who are going to be, they're going to be successful, you know, regardless of you. Um, it's, it's the students who don't have the savvy to be able to do that kind of work that you want to help scaffold in the beginning. But now wait, that doesn't mean, by the way, that you don't want them by the time they end their education career to be that hardy. I'm a big believer in hardy learning, right? You want those students to develop that hardiness over time and you want them to be able to do that kind of thing. But the, the idea is to help scaffold them early and then make that scaffold go away. If we zoom out and, and think about the ecosystem that both institutions and young people operate in, there, there seems to be a growing number of not just alternative higher ed, but alternatives to higher ed. Uh, these code schools and other technical training pathways. What, what's your take on those? I'm a big fan of, to me, the, the whole goal is, is learning, right? So I'm a, I'm a big fan of learning-centered education. If you can show me that the learning experience that someone's about to go through is going to improve and expand their learning opportunity, that's powerful. If you can then get a credential attached to it that gives them labor market choices, that's uh, the you know, that's the uh, one of the most important things, especially for low-income adults who are trying to, you know, trying to kind of change their trajectories in their lives. So the, the extent to which these code academies and, and kind of new models can attach themselves to the credentials that count, um, it does matter. I mean, I know people, are, but I mean, a good example is, you know, Western Governors University. I was a, an early trust board of trustee member for Western Governors and, and, I, and I, w- I actually helped, you know, I was on the, the committees that went through their early accreditation. And one of the reasons it was so important to get that accreditation was for a Western Governors University competency-based model, which is a new model that that credibility was really important for that student who's going to go on that different learning model. I absolutely wanted that learning model to prove out, but having that portable credential that counted was a really big deal. So part of our work is figuring out how we connect, you know, a kind of emerging and and kind of well thought out models that look to be that compelling with credentials that count so that students have choices. Uh, good examples with these code academies is figuring out how certifications or or badges out of those programs can then ladder into um, degree programs and partnering institutions. And we're already seeing that to kind of take off. What should institutions of higher education be doing or thinking about this expanding landscape? How, how do you counsel them uh, to, to be competitive with all these new options? I think part of the the challenge right now is being open to, you know, I call it the look, learn, lead, you know, kind of strategy. It's the idea of you've got to be willing to look at what's happening out there. There are a lot of folks who um, almost want to put their head down and, and just kind of do what they're doing and not realize that all this innovation is happening all around them. I think one of the things that you do incredibly well is you help provide that kind of view for a lot of folks to see, you know, just so you know, this is happening out here. And that looking part takes courage, right? There's some courage to look and kind of see things outside. But then the next step is that courage to learn, which is you've got to dive deeper and figure out, hey, maybe Maybe this could work here. Or maybe I can partner with them. Maybe there's a pathway or maybe, by the way, it's a competitor that needs to be there. Right. So when we launched WGU Texas in in Texas, um, the, there are three point five million students with some college and no credential in the state of Texas. And one of the things I used to say at WGU Texas was, you know, they'll take one percent. You can have all the rest. Right. It's a huge group of people who need that service. And and having that model is valuable. And now what you see in the state of Texas is 
Texas A&M Commerce has a great competency-based program going. Austin Community College has a great competency-based program going. So people are suddenly kind of kind of launching out with that. So that learning phase is really important. But then you've got to have the courage to lead, which is to figure out, okay, do I weave this into my mix? Do I partner with it? Or, or how do I kind of get conversations in my own context going, get my own um, teachers and, and advisors and other people kind of up to speed on how this works. Maybe I send them out on site visits and, and kind of the art of leadership to get people to actually begin that kind of implementation or partnership is is just that. It's, it's kind of an art. But you've got to be willing to do all three uh, because I don't think innovation is going to be slowing down anytime soon. I don't, I don't think the press for education outcomes is slowing down anytime soon. And it's going to be uh, it's going to be a pretty rowdy time for the next few years. We're really, it feels like in the in the early innings of this, transformation, right? I absolutely think so. And what's what's interesting is I think people thought we'd get through the internet and then we'd be there. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of us said, no, folks, this is the very, very beginning. It's like we are in the, I always say we're in the cartoon internet phase still. We are. And you, you and I have, have been involved in online learning for 20 years now. And and it strikes me that we're just really fully beginning to understand that ed- education is a an intermediated enterprise that it really that relationships matter a great deal and that helping young people make uh, good decisions uh, continues to be really important and and the sort of context that we can create on a college campus uh, matters a lot yeah I think so and I th- I think we are again I think we have the tools at our fingertips to do some really exciting things. And in particular, to help a lot of striving students do better on this pathway. There's no way you can tell me that 40% of the people who start higher ed should be not finishing, and especially when most of them are leaving not because of academic challenges. When they're leaving because of life and logistics and psychosocial reasons, we, you know, we can innovate around that. We can definitely, uh, and I don't care if we only get 20% better, um, that's an enormous amount of productivity. <laughs> that's an enormous, not to mention, those are stories of people who will change their lives forever ever because they successfully navigated the path. Let's um, end on that note. As you you think about a young person contemplating uh, post-high school options or a, a family trying to advise a student, uh, what what kind of advice would you leave them with? Yeah, so a couple things. I mean, one is, you know, the, the classic Tony Carnival, a statement from Georgetown Center for Education and the Workforce, where he says the only thing more expensive than going to college is not going to college, which I firmly agree with. I, I'm you know, you can't look at the data and not kind of get that going on that pathway. Um, and I don't care if it's a step by step pathway where you kind of get, take yourself you know, from a certification to an associates to a bachelor's and beyond. Is, is one, get clear about what you want to do, but get on that learning pathway. It is unbelievably good for your, for your soul and for your economic opportunities. Uh, I think the, the data are crystal clear on that. It is the pathway to possibility, not only for your economic opportunities, but for personal agency and personal effectiveness and even health. Um, so uh, when counseling young people, I say it's worth it, but it's not this nebulous go to college thing. Part of this work is figuring out, you know, you know, I love the work that they're doing at Stanford right now, but it's not a major, it's a mission, right? What do you want to do with your life? And let's, let's figure out an education pathway that makes sense to get you to a place where you can do the kind of things you want to be able to do with your life and make your difference and kind of make your mark. Mark Miller on the co-founder of Civitas Learning and, and chief learning officer, been a a real treat to catch up. We appreciate the work that you're doing. 
Yeah, great, great reconnecting, Tom, and, uh, and keep causing good trouble in your world. That was great advice from Mark Milleran. For more on helping young people chart their own course to a career they love, check out our Gen DIY series on gettingsmart.com and listen to our Gen DIY focused podcasts that include Gen DIY, Emerging Options for Students Navigating Life, as well as Student Voice, a catalyst for personalized learning. If you like this show, sign up for the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes or wherever you grab your podcast um, and leave us a review. It really helps other people find us. Big thanks today to Mark Milleran for joining us and sharing his knowledge on higher ed, as well as to our producer, Troy Lund, for making us sound so good. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Kat. And Tom. Keep learning. <laughs>